Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday morning news hour live on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording a show on Friday, May 29th, and it will be airing on the 31st. So I'd like to first just start off by welcoming all of my co-hosts. I am Teresa Robinson. I'm here with Emily, Matthew, and Jasmine. What's up, y'all? Hey. Hello. Hello, hello. How are you guys? Doing okay. Yes. I, I ate too much um, I, I pasta that was too salty, and so I tried to go for a run today, and that, that, was, that was a little rough. But Matt, that sounds terrible. It's so hot today, too. Yeah. A belly full of salty pasta. <laughs> That's disgusting. Wow, I understand that. Jasmine, yeah. how you doing? Um, I've definitely been better. You know, it's a lot of heavy stuff going on, so not the best day no. or week I... or year. <laughs> right, no. or year for that matter, right? Like, yeah. I uh, I recently was going through some videos to delete some stuff. On my google drive and there was a video from like thanksgiving me cheersing with my roommates like tears mm. to a wonderful 2020 <laughs> <laughs> <That> shit. <laughs> uh, and it's just been a belly full of salty <laughs> shit all year <laughs> exactly dumpster fire yeah new year uh, new, so new year's week. day was fun but yeah. that and was that, what it ended yep new year's night was also a fucking shit show <laughs> or i think the second january <laughs> second was when we all, all shit went to hell Anyway. Yeah, right. I, I remember our first show recording. Who would have known? That probably was like the last show. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, to, for today's show, uh, we have a different format. We are definitely going to address um, the national emergency that is going on in America right now. Um, so before we get into all of that, we have my lovely co-host Emily here to bring the good news because we all need some sunshine. We do. We do. Mm. And yeah. Um, Yes, we, we've talked about wanting to put this up front because it's been such a heavy week, especially and kind of easing everyone in with some good news. And here that is. Um, so this story comes from a May 19th article on Tanks Good News titled Magic Johnson Funding $100 Million in Small Business Loans to Minority-Owned Businesses Neglected by the Government. And it was written by Susan Lamarca. Uh, so according to the article, quote, the federal government's $650 billion paycheck protection program created to secure employees' paychecks and to ensure the survival of small businesses impacted by the pandemic has failed to recognize hundreds of Black and other minority-owned businesses, while millions in taxpayer money has been allocated to huge corporations and massive chain restaurants. Um, and some of those businesses include the L.A. Lakers. <laughs> um, the freaking L.A. Lakers got a lot of that money. Uh, so a primary reason for this is that the lenders who are, were doling out those loans um, prioritized businesses they already had existing relationships with. Uh, quote, in fact, a survey by Color of Change and Unidos U.S. shows that just 12 percent of black and Latino small business applicants received funding from the government's PPP, which was the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, so in response to all this, Magic Johnson is stepping up and donating $100 million towards loans for women and minority-owned small businesses through his insurance company, Equitrust. Uh, Johnson says, quote, this is when you think about it, like the like life and death for so many business owners. They have nowhere else to turn. Uh, yeah, I thought that was a great story. Um, I mean, obviously, it's founded on terrible news, which is that the people, you know, 
it feels like such a classic story. Like we saw it in 2008, like all these well-intentioned um, government, or I mean, I don't know how well-intentioned they are, but potentially could do a lot of good. A lot of this money is going to people who don't really need it and not the people who really do. Um, so I was happy to see someone trying to do something about that. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And there's also, even when you take out the factor of the federal government failing a lot of these businesses, there's also the fact that, you know, these are systemic issues. Like if you're a minority, if you're a black or a brown person, you're less likely to have the wealth like in your family to kind of tide you over in any kind of a hardship. So it's like that expression that we have, like when white America gets a cold, like black America gets pneumonia. It's always like these types of crises make things like they amplify issues that were already there. So that's definitely, you know, something that might be a setback for a lot of bigger businesses or a lot of white owned smaller businesses it's a setback for them, but it's like, you're completely wiped out if you barely were making it in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, especially like what you're saying with systemic too, it's like those, the fact that certain businesses are, have relationships with banks and other businesses can't get their foot in the door. Doesn't come from nowhere. That comes from like a long history of very specific rules being put in place to make sure that 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 happens. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yay. Magic. Yay! I actually went to sleepaway camp with his son uh, back when I was 16, EJ. He was my buddy for like a week. <laughs> what? Yeah, we oh. were in a, we were in carousel together. We were both in the background and just like we're kind of laughing and making fun of <laughs> certain things. Yeah, he it was fun. Seemed so awesome. Yeah, he was really cool. I had like my little like um, I had his email at one point, and I don't think I ever used it. But shout out to EJ Johnson if you're listening, which is, <laughs> I don't know the likelihood of that. But anyway, yeah. All right. That's my story, Teresa. Back to you. Thank you so much, Emily, for that good news story. We obviously need it. Uh, before we get into our deeper discussion, we're going to take a break for some music. Jasmine, what song do you have for us today? Um, Burning and a Lootin' by Bob Marley and the Wailers. How appropriate. We'll be right back. Stay with us.
You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn, and here is Teresa with our national news. All right, everyone. So we are going to discuss America today. The information gathered to discuss this story was drawn from several different sources, and the authors represented in my summary today are George Fitzgibbon and Philip V. McHarris. Americans all over the country are outraged by video of the death of George Floyd, a 46-year-old African-American murdered by the hands of Minneapolis police officers on Monday. It all started when Floyd went to the Cup Foods on Chicago Avenue South around 8 p.m. for a food run. The store clerk called the cops claiming that there was a forgery in progress. Someone was trying to pay for groceries with the counterfeit $20 bill. Surveillance footage from a nearby restaurant shows police arriving shortly after 8 p.m. and approaching a minivan where Floyd is sitting with two other people. Two officers walk up to the vehicle and one shines a flashlight inside. The second officer approaches Floyd and tells him to get out of the vehicle, prompting a brief struggle before he exits. Moments later, Floyd is seen, hands cuffed behind his back, being led to the side of a building by two cops. Floyd appears to be speaking to the officers, but does not appear to resist. What happens next is still uncertain, but the next time Floyd is seen on the video, he is pinned down by Derek Chauvin, a white cop who is seen pressing his knee into the back of Floyd's neck while he lies face down in handcuffs. In the span of nearly four minutes, Floyd can be heard telling police at least a dozen times that he can't breathe and asking Chauvin to take his knee off his neck as bystanders, including the grocery clerk who initially called 911, pleading with the officer to let Floyd get up. Floyd died soon after he was seen for several minutes visibly struggling for his breath and crying out to his mother for help. Police called EMTs around 8.30 p.m., and they arrived in six minutes to find Floyd unconscious and unresponsive. The video of the violent encounter resulted in the firing of the four Minneapolis police officers. Protests began erupting just 24 hours after the incident and have escalated throughout the week, both in Minneapolis and across the country. Demonstrators are demanding justice, calling for structural changes, and are demanding that all the police officers involved are charged and convicted of murder. Police in riot gear shot tear gas canisters into the crowds and have been firing stun grenades at demonstrators, injuring many. Some protesters turned violent, setting fire to retail stores and construction sites, and on Wednesday night, the police department's third precinct was set afire as protests over Floyd's death continue to rage and have been for the last three straight days. Derek Chauvin had been the subject of 10 prior conduct complaints over his 19 years on the force, but had never faced disciplinary action. He was taken into custody today by the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension and charged with only third-degree murder and manslaughter. So this is the story. I got chills as I was... Uh, closing it out. I think the chills came from the fact that I could say he has been charged, which is what we never hear in these cases um, specifically so quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was going to say definitely not this quickly. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Mike, uh, Mike Freeman has been the, the DA for the preceding high profile police killings. And he's been really, uh, dismissive and really slow to act and very much like, well, we have to prove 250% that this was inappropriate. 
and I don't know. I don't. I don't think that he has changed. He's got a, a fairly strange history. He had to. Um, but I, I was surprised, and I think I heard some of you say that you were surprised that charges were brought up so quickly, even though third degree manslaughter doesn't seem appropriate. Uh, yeah. So, so that that was pretty um, a a, a a surprise that you know was a good one that's a really interesting point actually i think that we're so used to no charges being brought at all that there has been i haven't seen like i mean it's been only a few hours but most of the discussion has just been like okay let now let's bring charges against the three bystanding cops not specifically about if are the charges appropriate the fact that they're just charged at all uh, charges at all are pretty uh incredible have you know I would say that for one, like there are cases where the charges will be brought, but then there's no, like the person is found innocent, like the police officers get off anyway. And also one of the problems that we have in the justice system is that sometimes they will deliberately overcharge someone because the burden of proof is higher for that charge and so it's easier for them to get off like if you have to prove that someone did something and they had malice in there and they really it's easier for them to figure out a way to be like well there's not enough evidence to say it's this degree of whatever so they just end up not with anything so I do think that this charge does to me sound kind of low but, you know, considering what I haven't watched the video, I don't partake in watching those videos personally. They're very traumatic for me. But mm-hmm. um, I definitely feel like if there's any silver lining to the charge being something that's somewhat lower than what we think might be fair, is that at least th- there's not as high a burden like of the evidence that you have to show or like some kind of premeditated mer- motive that he had. So I'm hoping that we go beyond just like a charge and there's actually, you know, a severe consequence for this man and also for the cops that let it happen. Yeah, I was going to bring that up, actually, because that is the part to me, um, you know, a lot of times in these cases, we see the mayor speaking out or somebody trying to take a local action to almost just stop the unrest from, from, you know, galvanizing to be across the country. But it is just the beginning. You know, it is just the very beginning of what will happen to, um, to this family. You know, it's it's not just about this person's death. This is also about, you know, the children that he can't raise, you know, whatever business that he was working on trying to become. He had only been, I think, one of the stories said he had only been in that city for less than a year. He had moved there to make a new start. So, um, you know, it's really tragic to see something like this go down. And when I was doing my research and found out that he was charged, I was like, oh, that's good to see. But but now what? Because in the moment right now where we're in this COVID situation and a lot of these, um, the courts are closed. They're not going to court. They're not trying people. It's the same thing we were talking about with Ahmaud Arbery. You know, they opening up all these businesses, but they don't want to open the courts. This is just a very, like, very tipping point of something being done. While we're happy to hear that this is happening, it definitely is not, it's not enough. It's just not enough at all. I mean, I don't really understand the degrees of murder, but this definitely seems like a first degree to me. 
Mm. Jasmine, you said something I I thought was uh, brought something to mind where I I don't watch or I try not to watch any of the the videos. Um, And I'm not exactly sure why I get a bad feeling. For some reason, I don't think it's appropriate. And uh, and I think it devalues other shootings and also raises the bar for what we need to prove that something bad happened. But I wondered what everybody else's thoughts are about the value of having these videos, because there's of course arguments to be made that these videos are bringing things to light or yeah. What do you all think? Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. I actually, I was going to say something too. Um, Cause I also noted when Jasmine said that. Um, yeah. I, I, I also feel uncomfortable watching them. Um, and I often choose not to, it's a very, I have a very visceral reaction to them, but not only that, it feels like a violation of their privacy in a lot of ways, but it, it, it's tricky because the outcry that we're getting for these stories is because there's video evidence. Um, you know, like this stuff isn't new. It's just new. It's just more people are seeing it for the first time in the world. It's not new at all. And so that's good that there is video that exists, though a bit more people are aware of what's happening and the severity of what's happening. But to have like, you know, I saw someone online post about like, please stop resharing this video. Like, you know, it's been shared enough times and it's traumatizing for the family to see your loved one get murdered. So, you know, so like cruelly so many times and have that be spread so wide. Like we, we, we don't like let, you know, like the news doesn't show videos of pe- like the actual, actual murders happening. I mean, but like, but when it, this sort of specific like police brutality thing, these videos get shared and there's, there, it's, it's a different, like people have different, you know, it's not the same thing or people don't view it as the same thing where we're not going to show an actual person getting murdered because you know does that make sense Am that's I a really sense? good point yeah I, yeah I never noticed that but that you're very it was on pbs news hour i saw right. and i was like this is crazy that's insane and you know look, I, I didn't mean to say insane i'm trying not to use that word but i feel like this in, in this country in particular like we have a very long history of disrespecting black people even in their death and making a mockery of them when they've been killed in public by the state like we have a history of having lynching postcards that people would send around like we send hallmark cards today and i do feel like you don't see as emily was mentioning you don't see other types of death with people of other colors being cheapened in this way and just like there are people who maybe they need to see the video to believe something happened or it gets them outraged there are people that get and unhealthy and some kind of like twisted excitement from seeing black people being brutalized. It's not just going out and being seen by people who want there to be some kind of a change. And I don't want to see, I would never want to see my loved one over and over again like that, you know, and that's what I think of when I see these things, like these are people that could be my family members and it's horrible, yeah. you know. It's like we don't see, we didn't see the little children that were killed in Newtown, you know. Even like there were those the 
poor migrant people, the immigrant people that were drowned, like trying to get into the U.S. I thought that was so callous, the way that those dead bodies were shown. It's like, we don't do this when it's white victims of a crime. Even when we do have evidence, there was a case a few years ago when um, they they were news reporters, I believe, and they were killed like on air and they very quickly took that video down. It wasn't left to linger and like, oh, I have to see it. Why is it okay for black people? So like, yeah. I, I understand the thinking that like, oh, we need this because they don't believe us. And I do think that there's some truth to that. But the truth of the matter is that's extremely fucked up that you have to see when it comes to black people, you have to see this over and over again to be, for there to be an outcry is ridiculous. And you don't see it with everybody else. Yeah, I agree with that. It's, it's really painful. You know, every time we have to report on these stories, I think about the kids walking across, you know, I don't have any children, but the fact that if my kids were at home, I would have to turn the television off. I would have to, you know, shield them um, from seeing this. And that wouldn't even stop it. You know, that would stop it in my house. But this is something that, you know, you grow up almost expecting to see as a as an African-American in this country. You kind of, you know, I don't, I haven't raised kids, but um, a lot of conversations I've been in lately have been, you know, the conversations that we have to explain to each other. First, are you okay? And to understand that you're going through trauma, right. that you're seeing trauma, that you are being in trauma just by being here you know, in the middle of all of this extra stuff we're dealing with and then what to do in the case of when it happens to you or someone, you know, or, you know, that portion right there from the person giving that information and receiving it is is toxic to know that that is like the rules of time traveling for a black person, you know, and they, these images will never be erased in our minds. Um, can, can, you, can you say that again about the time traveling? This, this is what it is. These are the rules of time traveling as an African-American to know what to expect, to understand that you're going to live your life in trauma as long as you are here and you are privy to seeing this stuff, which, which Jasmine brought is, is always us. It's always, you know, people of color that we see this sort of traumatic experience with. And then what do you do? What do you do when you feel upset? What do you do when you are approached by police? What do you do when you're in an emergency and you're supposed to call police? These are the rules of time traveling as a black person. And it, and that it keeps, it's like the same story that never changed from century to century to century. You know, it's, it's overwhelming to understand that there is youth right now that is living the same shit that that's been going on since the beginning of time. It's like, what are, what are we, what, what are we fighting for? I'm, I'm sorry. I don't think I was listening close enough. When you use the analogy time travel, are you talking about you keep getting pulled back to, to days of like greater racism, like, like stuck in the past or what did you mean? The past, the, the past is the present, Matt. There is really no difference in my mind. You know, when I did the Aubrey piece, I was talking about how modern day, like lynching never quit, you know, it just changed forms. Um, and, and growing right. up in the Midwest, you know, you see these things, you're growing up anywhere in this country, you see these things, but it never really changed. You know, I was on the front lines in high school fighting for Timothy Thomas, the 16th unarmed black man in Cincinnati, Ohio, who was murdered by May, number 16 by May that year. That was when I first went to college. And then I was on the ground 
when we were fighting in Ferguson. And then I was on the ground when we were fighting in New York. And, it, you know, I have done that. It took everything in me today not to go to Folly Square. I swear if I didn't have to record this, this show, I might have been locked up with the COVID, y'all. And I'm just saying that because what are you supposed to do? You know, how, how do you even respond? So right. it never ended. Right. Like, it's really... I agree with you, Teresa. I'm, I'm, I'm there with you 100%. And it's also these videos are for whose benefit, you know, do I need to see it again to know it happened? No. Do you need to see it to know that it happened? No. You know, it's like we've had video evidence since Rodney King that didn't get those officers arrested. There weren't any long term consequences. So to me, if anything, I think it's desensitizing a lot of people in addition to getting some more activated, but there's a whole generation of people. And then people in our parents' and grandparents' generations that every decade, it's a slew of these things that they've seen in their lifetime. It's not new. It's just maybe cameras are more readily accessible, but we've had images like these really traumatic burning images for all of our lives at this point. And it hasn't really led to any large scale systemic change. So it kind of rings hollow sometimes to think like, oh, well, but we need it. We need it. It's like we need something else and we need something better and more long term because clearly it's not. It's like this happens and then up on to the next. It's another hashtag. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're going to transition to the next part of this discussion. Um, where we will address um, the actual riots and the protesting. Um, this portion is more going to talk about the militarization um, of protests and police brutality. So uh, here goes. The cycle of police brutality sparking unrest and that unrest being met by the militarized police is increasingly familiar in modern American society, where more than 1,000 people annually are killed by police, with black people being three times as likely as whites to be the victims. Tough on crime policies and militarized police departments have paved the way for increased police contact and tragic violence. While many policies related to policing and mass incarceration happen at the local level, the militarization of police has been perpetuated by federal policies. Militarized policing dates back to the 1960s. The acquisition of military-grade gear by local police departments began under Lyndon B. Johnson's War on Crime. The 1965 Law Enforcement Assistance Act, better known as the LEAA, established a federal funding stream to increase the strength and size of local law enforcement by providing police departments with funding for military-grade equipment. In 1968, Congress passed the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act, making this funding stream permanent. While the LEAA began to and sustained the flow of federal money and resources for the growth and increased sophistication of local police, the war on drugs and hysteria surrounding it increased violence and supercharged the practice. Richard Nixon can also be accredited to framing this issue with his aggressive campaign to curb drug use and distribution in 1971. He empowered police to become the frontline soldiers and aggressively fight the war on drugs. Ronald Reagan intensified the war on drugs during the 1980s in large part because of the hysteria surrounding crack cocaine and the perceived violence it caused to American communities. Then, President George H.W. Bush, 
who made crime a key issue in the 1988 presidential campaign and supported a number of tough on crime measures, increased incarceration and strengthened the militarized police. In 1989, Congress passed the National Defense Authorization Act, better known as the NDAA, including Section 1208 that allowed for the transfer of military items to local and state police departments, specifically to counter drug activities. As police departments acquired billions of dollars on military-grade equipment, there was no required training. Even worse, departments had to use what they acquired at least once within the year of receiving it. This clause incentivized the use of unnecessary force and surveillance. Oh, just got chills. <sighs> the 1994 crime bill, initially written by Senator Joe Biden, flooded black communities with police, helped states to build prisons and establish harsher sentencing policies. After a white police officer killed Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, on August 9, 2014, local residents organized months of sustained protests against the killing, sparking a national movement for black lives against police violence. There was pushback, led then by President Barack Obama to research and release a 2014 executive office report on how federal programs had supplied police departments with military equipment. He issued Executive Order 13688 placing restrictions on the federal transfer and funding of military equipment for local police that blocked the inclusion of gear, such as tracked armored vehicles, rifles with bayonets, battering rams, riot gear, and explosives. The executive order also required more training and stricter documentation requirements around the use of the gear. However, President Trump reversed Obama's restrictions and fully restored the program Obama had cut. The Trump administration has allowed equipment to flow freely and intensify concerns around the danger that militarized police forces bring. Images on social media and all over the news point to the same department's gentle treatment weeks ago against the white anti-lockdown protesters. What we see now is that those who are protesting against police violence are being met with militarized police violence. The city's mayor, Jacob Frey, has spoken out against the tragedy and has gone on record stating being black in America should not be a death sentence. So that was a lot. Um, just wanted to put some information out there about how these how this whole system of militarizing people in protest was put into place. Um, you know, we can't really speak for the people that are on the ground. What I do know is in being involved in these protests, the feeling of hopelessness that is in the streets, you almost get to a point where you just really don't care. You just want to wreak havoc and destruction for someone to take you serious. Has anybody ever been on the ground in a protest to this magnitude? Uh, to, to this magnitude? Yeah. Um, I was shut down some highways. Okay. But, but yeah, no, no. No fires. Yeah, I never set a fire either. Yeah, I've been in some, I've been in protests that were pretty big, like protesting, like pro-Black Lives Matter, but nothing that became violent to this extent, or at least not at the point where I joined in. And also like some pro-immigrant uh, rallies and protests like that in uh, Manhattan. 
I, I think the scariest part about, you know, the information I just provided was the fact that they are required to use the equipment once within a year. What is that about? I was, I literally wrote that down because I wanted to circle back to it. Like, I, I didn't know. I mean, I maybe I've heard it at some point. So I remember I've watched some news pieces about that the, like the bills that equip, you know, um, local small town police stations with equipment, like fucking tanks. Yeah. Like, it's, like, what do you need a tank for? <laughs> like, who Battering are you fighting? And things. What was that, Justin? I said, and like battering oh, yeah. rams. It's like they literally, you will see, and there's plenty of footage of people going into offices, going into neighborhoods as if they are in a war zone. And that's how they view the people. If and that's how the people them, view them. Exactly. Right. right. It's like you are an occupying force. And you're being occupied in your own community right. and hunted. Right. And it, that's exactly right. Like to militarize the police is using like the army on its own citizens, essentially. Absolutely. And I know that that might be oversimplification. Obviously, there's a lot of nuances, blah, 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 whatever. But like that is what it feels like. And I'm, it's not too different um, um, from that Teresa, in your piece, sorry, I'm, I'm a little lightheaded um, during this recording. Did you talk about, wasn't there a law or something that, like in the Constitution, where the army is not allowed to uh, strike or be turned on American citizens? So, like, this is like the roundabout? Uh, no, I did not talk about that, but I definitely think that's an area uh, for us to discover. Because, you know, I think a lot of times, what happens is we are not aware of when these laws change, when things are pushed back. We're not aware. And most laws are created on top of laws to make claws. You know, I used to say that a lot. When, I used to say that when I did a lot of spoken word things, but it's the truth, you know. Most laws are on top of the laws to make claws so that the necessary people can maneuver through the Constitution as opposed to actual change being made. I love there was a onion headline, I think, that was it was like a who wore it better, the police or the military. And it was just mm. pictures of them both like all like suited up with their death equipment. Yeah, it's um, really fucked up. You know, it's yeah. it's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my heart goes out to everyone in Minneapolis right now. Uh, yeah. to the families of all of the people who are being murdered by police, all of the families, because, you know, it's, it's to a point now saying all oh, the names will take a whole three days of this show or longer mm -hmm. um, in my lifetime, the names that I can remember. But um, I definitely, it's definitely something to think about, you know, and I do feel and I fear that in this COVID world, we're going to see more of this. We're going to see more mm -hmm. of this for things that may not be specifically collect connected to police brutality, but the concept that the police are the military on the streets of America, like it's here, it's here. Mm -hmm. It's not new. It's happened before. This is just it happening in our lifetime. Uh, sad to say our heroes are little dead black people and grown dead black people. Those are our cultural heroes that cause revolution. And it's, it's really sickening and just so, so sad that um this is this is how the people have to come together right and i, I would like to add though that it's important for people to wake up who haven't been aware of what the function of the police actually is 
you know, the slogans often say to serve and to protect, but you need to question who are they protecting and who are they serving and who are they acting in service to? Because we can see who they're not protecting and who they're not helping. You know, people do think of them as and use them as a way to control lower classes of people, people that they don't consider to be fully human. We see what happened with this woman, um, Amy Cooper in the, in Central Park, you know, thinking and using the police as like your own personal security to keep black people in line. And that's what we're seeing, I think, like on steroids right now. And I'm, I'm hoping that more people wake up to that's what the reality of it is. Like these people as a group, they are not your friend. They are there to protect property and to protect the interests of specific groups of people. That's their number one priority. <sighs> Any final thoughts before we take a next musical break? Um, uh, the I'm off. No, I, I have, I have a, a, a small point. So I'm not sure which police departments are doing a, like a bang up job, but Melvin Carter, who is the mayor of St. Paul, the, the sister city of the Twin Cities right next to Minneapolis, he pointed out that th there have been three or four high-profile uh, killings by the police. And he pointed out that it was Minneapolis, it was this other teeny kind of suburb called St. Anthony, uh, Bloomington police haven't been very good. And, and he said, yeah, well... My police department, St. Paul's, has been working for years to actually try to improve. And I'm not saying that St. Paul's doing a great job because I, I haven't looked into it, but this that it, it is possible for communities to have an impact uh, and to push police departments it, it, because I think it, it makes them too powerful if they are this monolithic. Uh, drape over America, but on on individual levels, it is possible to at least incrementally. I don't know. I just don't like the idea of them being this this goddamn like Disney villain that's like unstoppable. You know, <laughs> like any like bit of light I can see. Well, yeah, I mean they're made up of individual. Like you know, they're. It's not. In I think. What am I trying to say? I think that they're made up of individuals and there's always the possibility of change for better, which makes it all the harder to watch the same cycles play out over and over in some ways. Cause, because, you know, it is this person, it is one person that, you know, he, or, and three people watching that killed George Floyd. And, you know, it, it, it feels like it just as easily could have been a cop that, responding to this that didn't want to use that level of force and it, it, there's possibility to bring more people like that into the police force and try and get rid of people you know try and root out the people who aren't who don't have the right mindset but it makes it harder when we see it play out over and over and over again knowing that those things aren't happening yeah like ways. at this point in 2020 after all of these years and people fighting and protesting and trying to reform and encouraging people who are from diverse backgrounds to be police officers i don't feel optimistic at all like i think that you can't have individual and like piecemeal solutions to big systemic problems so you know it's like it's we it's it's been how many generations of this and people have been trying and fighting and voting and doing all of this and we still see the same thing 
And the things that we see that make it to the news are just the things that make it to the news. Like we have police departments like in Chicago where there's literal black box torture sites for people that just get disappeared. So I don't know if we'll see like a big overhaul in our lifetime, but that's what I'm hoping for. There's a lot of other ways to serve your community than to be a part of an increasingly militarized, antagonistic police force. And on top of everything, as we go into our next musical break, you have to be anti-racist. It's not enough to say that racism isn't is horrible. You have to be anti. It cannot be okay for anyone to be treated this way. So we are going to take a break um, for some music. Uh, we have another Bob Marley song. This one is featuring Erica Badu. It is No More Drama. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. Here now is a special item of news from the JBC Newsroom. Entertainer and reggae star Bob Marley is a now patient in the University Hospital after receiving gunshot wounds during a shooting incident which took place at Marley's home at 56 Hope Road tonight. Any, any, any community you go in, it's a problem. Like you go in a prison, 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 prison. segment that song we just played let me just correct the title is actually no more trouble and that was bob marley featuring erica badu so jasmine uh take us into the next story okay so as we were just talking about we know that the murder of george floyd in minneapolis has sparked protests around the country and it's drawn the attention of the national news media uh, I'm not sure if anyone here saw on the news today, but we also saw that Oscar Jimenez and other journalists on his team were arrested live on television in Minneapolis when they were trying to cover the protests. But what I wanted to bring to our attention today is that it's not only Black cis men who are being killed by police. So this information is coming from Out.com. Um, the author is Mikkel Street. And just this past Wednesday, a black trans man was killed by police in Tallahassee, Florida. His name was Tony McDade. 
Another man was stabbed in an altercation between a man who was thought to be McDade and someone else. The stabbing victim died from his injuries. The Tallahassee police found McDade, alleged that he had a gun on him, and shot him dead. His was the second killing of a black person by police this week, followed following George Floyd. According to Refinery29, he was the 11th trans or gender nonconforming person to be shot to death so far uh, this year. Before his death, Tony uploaded a video to social media in which he recounted being the victim of a racist and transphobic attack by five men. He went on to say he planned to get revenge, and he vowed not to go back to prison. The group Equality Florida says that Florida is the epicenter of anti-trans violence in the United States. Seven Black trans women have been killed in the state over the last two years. Uh, We talked on the show a few weeks ago about the disparities between the amount of media coverage of Breonna Taylor's death and that of Ahmaud Arbery. The amount of media attention and also the manifestations of anger and outrage that we see when a cis black man is murdered by the state often eclipses what you see when a black woman or a queer black person is killed also by the police. What I want for listeners to take away from this is that whose deaths we choose to mourn collectively is a reflection of whose lives we value and whose lives we don't. And it is not only cis black men whose murders should be sparking outrage and demands for justice. We need to ask ourselves why it is that so many more people are mobilized and activated to fight back when there is a presumed straight hetero male victim than when that is not the case. A person murdered by the police should not have to fit a specific profile to be a catalyst for calls for justice. As of right now, so as of Friday, May 29th, the officers involved in the shooting have not faced any charges or other consequences. So that's the end of um, my separate story I wanted to bring to our attention. You know, there's many different types of Black people that are being killed by the police. They're not getting their day in court or anything. And I just don't want certain people to be forgotten or left to the wayside because so much attention is given usually to one or two very high profile cases. Yeah, that's really important. Jasmine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. Mm -hmm. But it is, um, I think we're way past the time where, you know, these stories are killing of black people is never a monolithic thing as as you know normal as it is to us even with the story of Brianna last week I mean we haven't seen any more coverage on that um we haven't heard anything else about it I think it's it's unnerving to know what happens when the cameras aren't rolling and all the other people that are having these issues on a daily basis so thank you for bringing that to light definitely something to consider um right now yeah and I think there's, it, it taps into like a long, a longer, not a long and broad history of needing a, a victim to be perfect, to be um, valued. I think, you know, quote unquote, perfect, um, which spans into a lot of, a lot of different issues and just media outlets choosing to not put as much emphasis on cases like that because a a person doesn't fit into a certain idea of, you know, some like 
needing to fit into a certain idea of who a person should be. Um, right. It's like it, the no angel yeah. thing. Like even when yeah. I was looking up Tony mm-hmm. McDade, mm-hmm. the first thing you see is, oh, he had a lengthy rap sheet. You know, nothing right. that he did is something that in this country is punishable legally by being killed in the street. We yep. know Brianna didn't do anything. Like there have been protests um recently on her behalf, so that's been going on. There were unfortunately seven people shot, I think, last night in Louisville during the protests. But it often takes something else that's getting more attention to bring attention to these other victims. And you know, it's really a shame because whatever your orientation is, whatever your identity, you know, like when a black person is gunned down in this way, I know that I feel something and you always see black women, like queer black people. You see a lot of us that are out at the forefront when something happens to a black man. And I just want everyone to keep that same energy for all of the victims. Mm. Yeah. Really important. Um, Really important. So, yes. So, uh, Matt, we have um, come to the portion of the show where we get to hear your more editorial piece. Um, Matt, you're from Minnesota, correct? That's right. Yeah. So definitely your perspective is welcomed um, during this time. So the floor is yours, my brother. (laughs) All right. Yes, I, I am from Minnesota. And about a year ago... At this time, I was finishing a documentary on a disreputable and illegally functioning landlord in Minneapolis. The main subject of the radio documentary was a renter's rights group. I spent a lot of time at their office, which was a single-story building that housed four or five other activist groups. It was a beautiful place, not literally. The building looked like a repurposed dentist office, but the people that brought that space to life were wonderful. In that building, I covered social movements, social justice movements, and even took a free yoga class put on by a body-positive career group called Out in the Backyard. Across the street was an art framing store where my girlfriend worked. The businesses on the blocks ran the gamut from pre-gentrification, laundromat corner store, to full gentrification, fancy coffee shop, photography studio. It was a metaphorical intersection between race and class, and last week at the literal intersection where I had spent so much time, George Floyd was killed by the police. Minnesota is known for a couple things. Prince, who loved Minnesota, the movie Fargo, which isn't uh, actually in Minnesota, or at least Fargo isn't, and Bob Dylan, who didn't give too much of a shit about Minnesota. But lately, we've been known for our police killing people, mostly black people who make up 60% of the extrajudicial killings, yet only 20% of Minneapolitans. That's how we say people from Minneapolis, which I never knew if that was a joke or not, because it always sounded kind of cute or funny. Anyway, in 2015, Jamar Clark's killing inspired an 18-day protest in front of North Minneapolis's police precinct. In 2016, Philando Castile, who worked at a grade school that I taught clarinet and trumpet at, was killed during a traffic stop where an officer had profiled him. The officer said he looks like a robbery suspect. Quote, the driver looks more like one of our suspects just because of the wide-set nose, end quote. 
In 2017, Justine Diamond, an Australian-American, called the cops because she thought she heard someone being assaulted. When the cops arrived, she knocked on the police car to get their attention. One of the officers was startled and shot her. Melvin Carter, the first black mayor of St. Paul, the sister city to Minneapolis, was interviewed about the recent killing of George Floyd. He pointed out Minneapolis's history of subjugation. For example, Minneapolis had a sting operation focusing on low-level amounts of weed. It was shut down when people learned that 46 of the 47 people charged were black. Mayor Carter also pointed out that St. Anthony's police force, which had trained the officer who killed Philando Castile, had a culture of bad policing. For example, their well-known reputation for racistly stopping black people for traffic stops. But it should be noted, Philando Castillo's killer was Latino and Justine Diamond's killer was Somali-American. It should also be noted that Diamond's killer, Mohamed Noor, was the only officer that was convicted, which is strange because all the other high-profile killings involved a conscious decision to profile and target innocent people. Moore was trained to react to any surprise with violence, which he did, and he killed a white woman, and he is the one officer who is in prison. Well, many others are free, and many are also still police officers. It also should be noted that Moore did not have a tr have traditional training, but he had an accelerated seven-month course, and then they deemed him able to wield a gun in public. 2015, 2016, 2017, and now another flagrant killing done by the police. But it's not just the killings. A local Onion-like satire site called The Nordly has... A headline that reads, Minnesota continues to rank among best places to live if you ignore asterisks. They're making fun of the ever-present, if you're Minnesotan, articles that claim that Minneapolis or Minnesota is one of the nation's best places to live. And it certainly is, if you're white. Minneapolis's economy is strong. There's a respected state university, three professional sports teams. If you're white, it's heaven on earth. But if you're native, not so much. If you're Dakota, the city of Mankato, Minnesota, is not the cute small town where the Minnesota Vikings have summer training camp, but the location of America's largest mass execution. In 1862, after an uprising caused by settler violence, 38 Dakota men were hanged. The order was given by Abraham Lincoln. After the war, a man named Henry Sibley enacted a retribution campaign against the defeated, it made him famous, so famous that he became Minnesota's first governor. And considering that in 2011, George Floyd's killer was put on leave after being involved in the shooting of a Native American man, it only is further stitched together the pattern of white supremacy. Minnesota is the best place to live, again, if you're white. Minnesota has the 47th largest economic racial disparity in the country. Black home ownership is at 24%, while white home ownership is at 76%. Many homes still have racial covenants written into the deeds that say that the house cannot be sold to black people. It's an unenforceable stipulation, but it still remains there in writing. But here's the weird part. Minnesota isn't the 47th worst place to live if you're black. The, despair, the discrepancy of wealth is the 47th largest. So if you're black, your neighbors are doing fine, more than fine. There are magazine articles with titles like Minneapolis ranked second best city for young professionals. 
while black people are being denied loans and killed in the street. It's under this backdrop that all of the rioting started. I don't want to disempower my fellow Minnesotans who have been fighting for equality. There has been much progress, though it is in no way a sign that white supremacy, this is in no way a sign that white supremacy is winning. As terrifying as that killing is, remember, on the same block is a small building that houses organizers working on workers' rights and housing rights. Just two weeks ago, the group that I profiled for that radio documentary, the one that was fighting an illegal landlord, just forced their landlord to sell five of his apartment buildings to the tenants so that they can start a co-op. And this week, even more fighting. That's my little recap on the history of Minnesota and the turmoil that we've always gone through. Uh, thank you for that, Matt. That was a powerful piece um, about your experience there. So we are wrapping up our show. We'd like to thank you so much for listening um, and staying with us. We're doing really well, um, keeping up the energy during this quarantine, and we appreciate you all supporting uh, this movement of truth seekers and truth tellers, um, New Yorkers, regular human beings that uh, feel it in our hearts to bring forth these stories and bring light to these people. So you have been listening to Objection to the Rule. We're gonna play you out. Our final song is Damien Marley featuring Nas, Patience. You can check out older episodes on the Radio Free Brooklyn website or look for our show anywhere where iTunes podcasts can be found. I'm Teresa Robinson here with Emily, Matt, and Jasmine. Thank you so much for tuning in to Objection to the Rule. We'll see you next week. Bye. 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 Here we are. Here we are. Right here is for the people.